Welcome to another episode of the Replant Bootcamp Podcast, the Boots on the Ground podcast for replanters by replanters with your host, Bob Bickford and Jimbo Stewart. Here in the trenches with you doing the gritty and glorious work of replanting dying churches. This podcast is sponsored by 180 Digital, the church website and branding partner you need to help move your church forward. Here we are back at the boot camp, Bob. I hope you're ready for the next episode. Back in our own domiciles from the weary travel that we've been on lately. We've been all over the country and continuing to be as we do a lot of great events. And at one of those great events, we had a really great speaker in maybe the most unique venue that we have ever hosted a replant event. Absolutely, Jimbo. We were at the replant lab, the replant practitioner lab in Atlanta, and our dinner got kicked to the College Football Hall of Fame because apparently all the floor and decor stores were having a big conference at the Omni. So we were trying to work a deal where we could get rid of the red Baptist carpet that's in so many of the declining churches. <laughs> and I think we have a, we'll have a sponsorship to announce at some point in the future. <laughs> yeah, we walked in this room in the College Football Hall of Fame right next door to the Omni in downtown Atlanta. Beautiful venue. We walk in where we're having a banquet and it's this half a football field with complete with a field goal. And I think you've tried to kick a field goal there, if I'm not mistaken. I did. Yeah. 2019, we went over at that point, if you had a Chick-fil-A red card membership, you could get in for free. And I had my wife with me and she single-handedly funds our local Chick-fil-A with her and our three kids. And so she, I think there's a step above red that my like signature, my wife is a signature member. And it's one of those, she has so many points at Chick-fil-A. I think she's a signature member to like 2027 or something stupid <laughs> like that. And, and so they were like, yeah, come on in free. And uh, thank you for all the money you've spent at Chick-fil-A. So me and my wife and Kyle Beerman and Evan Skelton went with us and we kicked field goals and toured the whole place. It was pretty great. Awesome. Well, part of that, we had a, a kind of sort of a banquet, I would guess. And we had a uh, concert by Chosen Road. But we had a speaker, Trevin Wax, who is part of the NAM family. And we want to welcome him to the Bootcamp Podcast. Trevin, it's great to have you here. And thank you for doing our event last week. Oh, great to be with you guys and thoroughly enjoyed it. So Trevin, give us the quick backstory. I remember becoming familiar with you as a fan of the Gospel Coalition and reading your articles and those sorts of things. And then I learned that you went to Southern Baptist Seminary and you've been a missionary. And then all of a sudden we got the great news that you joined us at the NAM family. So can you give us like the quick, who is Trevin Wax and how did he get here background? Yeah. So I'd say first and foremost, I'm a writer. I've been writing for for a long time. My blog has been hosted at Gospel Coalition for 11 years now. So I've been writing columns there for for a long time. But, you know, I've been writing books even. First book was published when I was 29. So I've had a number of books that have come out over the the last decade or so. But yeah, I did did mission work in uh, Romania for five years. When I was doing my undergrad, I was at a Christian university there and doing some mission work at the same time. I've been at both Southern Seminary for my MDiv and then Southeastern Seminary for my PhD. Worked at Lifeway for 11 years. Helped start a curriculum called The Gospel Project that was way more well-received than we realized, actually, when we first started it, but has really been used by a lot of churches. 
also spent a lot of time at Lifeway helping launch the CSB. So the translation, the CSB that launched in 2017. And then also by the time I left there was leading Lifeway Research. So I came to NAM about a year and a half ago to oversee a small team of research and resource development. We do newchurches.com for church planters. We assist the evangelism team, the Send Relief team, the Send Network team, and different resources that are coming out. We've been involved with you guys as well at Replant and you know just speaking into different things that are going on when it comes to revitalization and whatnot. And so, yeah, so it's exciting to be in the NAM family and be able to bring some of, you know, that experience that I've been able to have in, in other areas to, to help assist NAM and, and all the great things that this organization is doing. Man, it's been great to have you as part of our NAM family. And I, I think the boot camp is probably a stepchild to the NAM family in some a sort of way, <laughs> but we are, we're super excited to have you. And then most recently you launched a podcast within the last year and Tell us a little bit about that and what was the heart behind that? Yeah, you know, it was a, I wanted to do a podcast that was a little different than a lot of the podcasts I was listening to at the time. I thinking about doing something that would be addressing some of the different issues facing the church, giving us something of a credibility crisis. So it's called Reconstructing mm-hmm. Faith, which is obviously a little play on words because a lot of people are talking about deconstruction right now, deconstructing their faith or deconverting. But it's not so much a podcast for people that are deconstructing or in that sort of phase. It's really more for those of us in the church that want to see the church be healthier and renewed in the in the coming years. And so it, it's documentary style. So think like, you know, This American Life or The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill and things like that, where it's story focused. There's, you know, news clips and music clips. People talk about the music clips. <laughs> Quite a bit of old CCM from the late 90s, early 2000s showing up there. But it's a little more journalistic style with interviews and things like that. And so you know, the idea of it was, how, you know, how can we do this in the most compelling way possible to kind of address some of these issues in a way that would be really constructive? Like, really, like, that's what I wanted was to get voices that are, they're not necessarily, they're not like flamethrowing kind of voices. They're not, you know, controversial. They're not the ones that are, you know, out there saying this thing or that thing. They're really, you could tell from the people we had on there, I think they really want to see the church better and are wanting to rebuild in some way. And so I wanted the whole tone of it to be that. Yeah, we need to recognize that there's a lot of challenges in the church, but we also need to, you know, roll up our sleeves and, and get busy. And so I, you know, and it's found a good audience. There's a lot of people out there that I think are asking these questions and are not necessarily wanting to to just listen to, you know, podcasts about, oh, everything the church has gotten wrong, or that just ignore all that the church is getting wrong, but to, to really say, okay, how can the, how can we be part of the solution to a lot of the problems that we, that we face in the church today? And that's really been the heart of it. I don't expect everyone to listen to it and necessarily agree with every guest or every proposal or everything that's there. But the, the idea is let's get a conversation going for those who really want to rebuild. And yeah, we'll have conversations and debates and disagreements about some of the best ways forward on some of those pressing issues. But the goal is if we can get constructive voices in conversation, I think, I think we'll, we'll, I think that'll be healthy and good for the church. I think that's excellent. And in particular for us and our work with churches that have been in decline for a while, there's some conditions that have led to the demise of a church. And one of the things I particularly found most helpful in your last episode for this year was a conversation you had with Tim Keller that provided critique and and observation, but also some hope. And as we deal with churches that are struggling and have been struggling for decades, they find themselves in a challenging position where where they've maybe become attached to some things that they've got to steer away from. And uh, so as you think about church, when you see it in as it is now and where it's been, what are some of the things that you think would be helpful for us 
as churches, maybe a declining church or plateau church, what are some of the things we need to be cautious about or tend to steer away from or maybe avoid even? Yeah, you know, that episode, you know, Keller brought up a few things that where the church really needs to to avoid some some particular traps. I mean, one of them, I mean, one of the most common ones is thinking that the way that you stop decline is by changing your core convictions and your beliefs. You know, that's sort of the liberal mistake is this idea that, you know, well, we, there's a, I've heard it said, you know, there, there's some some leaders in the Church of England saying this, there's a moral chasm between us and the next generation. And the only way we're going to reach the next generation is if we jettison some of our long held beliefs about marriage or sexuality and things like that, which I think is the exact wrong approach. When we, the church has this weird tendency, I think, of like jumping on bandwagons right as a train's about to crash. And I, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, uh, <laughs> let's not do that. Like you can watch the train wrecking, you know, with, you know, I, and even like sex secular people are beginning to ask questions about the sexual revolution and has it been good for women and for kids and so like that it's like yeah now is like the worst time to like jump on that bandwagon right so you know so jettisoning orthodoxy to stop decline that's that's the mistake most people listening to this podcast i think would be more inclined to what can sometimes be the mistake more on the conservative side and that's just to assume that we can, that we just to assume it's just going to be impossible to grow again. Mm-hmm. Like just like if we just maintain what we've got, you know, that'll be success. I like to say it's, it's making maintenance the mission. Mm-hmm. Just let's just huddle up, hold on to what we've got. And that's going to be what success is. And really losing hope that Christianity can thrive. There are times when God shows us that that's not impossible. I mean, there's been you know a lot of conversations about the spiritual awakenings at you know Asbury and other college campuses and whatnot among young people. And I mean, I, regardless of what you know people may think about the the ins and outs or everything good or bad about you know particular awakenings, they're always messy. You know, they're they're always messy. But the one the one thing that has always been the case about revivals throughout history is that they're they're surprising and suddenly it's like you like there's an intensification of the work of God that, you know, you've been plowing and plowing and plowing. And then suddenly it's just like you start seeing results or fruit that just are unexpected. Tim Keller likes to say, you know, we've never seen a revival in a post-Christian nation, but he goes, you know, at the same time, he's like, yeah, but you know, it doesn't happen until it happens. (laughs) So like when it happens, it happens. So like you can't, you, the idea though, that, that we can't grow in a secular environment or that it's impossible for us to thrive, that sort of defeatist deflationary, that I think we've got to we've got to avoid that for sure. But those are two of the big mistakes. Yeah, I I would agree that from our observations, we see a lot of churches go into that kind of maintenance mindset and want to blame the lack of growth or effectiveness on a lack of responsiveness to culture. And that one of the things as we work with dying churches, they often will tell us we held the black parties, we did the events. Nobody wants to come to our church. We've invited them and no one wants to come, the culture is not responsive, and they enter that point of hopelessness. One of the other things I like that you discussed with Keller was the idea that there is a hopefulness, and what what will the church look like in however many years that is, if we see you know, some great renewal, what will in, in 50 years, when none of us are pastoring or, or leading, what what will that look like in the local church? And there was, you know, a lot of ways, I think five ways that, that Keller listed out that all had a very, very Keller theme of failing to understand and fully grasp the gospel. But as you look at some of those, 
what stands out to you in particular to the churches in this audience are very small churches with solo staff, usually bivocational, or churches being replanted by a mother church, starting with a pretty pretty low critical mass, and it's hard for them sometimes to see hopefulness. Yeah. I mean, we talk about the church in 50 years and where it might be. And I know you say none of us will be leading then. I mean, you need to speak for yourselves. Like I'm so hoping to be around. I'm, I'm like, I, I want to be like, uh, you know, I, I want to be the guy that's like all, everybody's already died before me and I'm kind of turning off the lights. You know what I mean? Like, like uh, my nineties right in my last book. Like that's my, like Dick Van Dyke. Primarily uh, talking like, about me. I would be as old as the apostle John or older. So <laughs> look, I've, I've worked, I've worked with enough 90 year olds to know how miserable being 90 is. So I'm good with, with going ahead and going to heaven. See, I don't know, man. Like I love like Gene Getz and I'm talking about like J.I. Packer and, some of these guys, like I'm like, yeah, I want to be still doing my daily core exercises when I'm 95, but beyond that, okay, that's 50 years down the road. We'll see if this podcast, if I, if I, if the Lord gives me that many years, I want to serve him that many. If he takes me much sooner, that, that'll be uh, just fine too. I'll, well, I won't yeah. be complaining. Let me just put it that way. <laughs> but um, no, when I think, I think when we think about what the, the church is going to look like in 50 years or even a hundred years. This is one of the, the things that is really behind the, the heart. It's the heartbeat for my book, The Thrill of Orthodoxy, is that there's a lot that's unknown right now. And there's a lot of, you know, discouragement in the church today. And especially among leaders that are plowing in tough areas, tough fields, you know, and not not seeing the growth that they want to see or whatnot. One of the, the things that got a, you know, that I, I wanted to, to make clear with Thrill of Orthodoxy was to say, well, you may not know all the answers, but you can plant your flag here and you know that you can you can stand here at the, the the sort of the bedrock of the faith, and you can have confidence that what Christians have believed for two thousand years, if the Lord tarries a hundred years from now, that Christians are going to be believing those same things. So there's going to be a sort of a, an orthodoxy in doctrine, like they're still going to be confessing the, you know, the Nicene Creed, the faith you know, once for all delivered to the saints, still going to be believing. I mean, I believe there's evangelical essentials, you know, about, you know, justification by faith alone and are still going to be saying these, these things. So one of the areas that's easiest, I think for all of us, or I say easy, it's, it's probably harder than it seems, but it's, it's easy in the sense that there's not a whole lot to do except to keep standing where you're standing is to say, we're not going to renege on our on our doctrine, on our, on our, on the truth. So the renewed church is going to look a lot like the old church, the ancient church. I think is is an important thing to to remember, but when I when I think about particularly you know churches in in areas where it can be tough and the 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 resistance can be strong and there may be you know areas that are more disadvantaged today or are in challenging areas where there's you know people leaving the community rather than moving into the community. I think of that happening in a lot of places. Say, so, well, what what would a new church in areas like that look like? Well, I think you know one of the key ways that a church is the church is that a church is known for the way it serves the community hmm. and it serves the people in the community. You know, Keller talks about being very more generous than, than the wider population into serving the poor and the marginalized and those that are, that are, you know, in financial distress or in economic distress or even moral distress. You know, I mean, you think about the opioid epidemic that's ravaged so many towns and cities and things like that. And so I would just ask the question, okay, what are the gifts in the particular congregation you've got? Even if it's a small congregation, if we're talking just tens of people, right? Like what are the particular gifts to like make an impact so that the church is known in the community for 
a particular thing. Maybe there's a, a public school that's having a lot of challenges and there, there are people there that are tutoring or collecting resources to like fill backpacks for kids that, that really don't even have a essential school supplies and things like that. I'm just thinking like, what are, it, it, don't think big, think small at first. Mm. And don't think that you've got to do everything. Think about what, you know, can you do something? I think that the church being the church in that kind of environment and being known for this is a, this is an outpost of generosity toward our community that because when we, even when culturally there's resistance because of some of the church's beliefs and there's going to continue to be that resistance, just demonstrating the, the, the goodwill and the heartfelt compassion of Jesus for that, for a community can go a long way. Can, it can really can go a long way. And so Again, don't think I'm talking about another program necessarily or like adding a gazillion things to the the plate of a busy bivocational pastor. I'm just saying like look around at what are the gifts and skills that God has already placed in that congregation and ask how can those be deployed for the community because the, then the invitation is going to be different when that when that church is known for something more than just holding worship services. It's really known for being a a beacon of light in a small in a, in a small place. I love that idea and thinking through the churches that we have pastored as replanters, Jimbo and myself, and then others that we have friends and peers and colleagues and then churches we consult. Oftentimes in a declining church, you've got a, a, a seasoned group of saints who built the church in their 30s and 40s, but now in their 60s and 70s. That is really a daunting task to mobilize those folks into a culture that's completely different than the one they grew up in and equip them to engage in mercy ministry and compassion ministry and those things. What counsel might you have or encouragement might you have for a replanter who's looking around at the at the gifts that exist, even though they're in, embodied by saints who are older? How do we mobilize a small group of Christians who maybe their their primary days were 10, 15, 20 years ago? How do, how do we re-mobilize that group to engage their community in some helpful ways that would steer us towards this idea of the church being known as a as a place of blessing and a body of blessing in the community. Yeah. I you know I love the way that you're asking that question because I think it, it's important for us to all realize that the body of Christ is like there are particular gifts given in the body of Christ and there's not an there's not necessarily an age limit on these gifts. And I think I think we live in a society that really thinks most of the time young is better than old. And just to how out of step that is with history in general and church history in particular, there are particular gifts that older saints have that younger saints don't have and that younger saints need to benefit from. And not just younger saints, but also people. So if there's, you know, if you've got a church that's got, you know, 30 to 40 people in it, the vet, you know, the average age is over 65. Well, then you've got to ask the question, what does it mean for us to be godly grandfathers and grandmothers not only to our kids and grandkids, but like in our community, like what does this look like? And I mean, I got to tell you, some of the best like disaster relief people I've ever worked with in a church have been people that are retired, that do training and then wind up rushing to places that are, you know, where there's immense suffering and, and doing a tremendous amount of good. Like I, I just, I feel like we, we kind of ask the question almost backwards, like, well, of what use can be these older saints? And I'm thinking mm. the question is like, well, what can't they do? <laughs> like, let's yeah. let, I mean, there's so many things that older believers can have. And, and the more you get older believers engaged in particular forms of outreach, ministry, service, compassion, whatever it might be, the more outward focused you get them. One, one of the challenges in bivocational pastors, I know, know this, is that a church 
just left to itself naturally turns inward. It happens with our groups. It happens in congregations. And you you don't get a church to turn outward by berating the church and by just telling them all the time, you should look outward. You only get that to happen when you get, you know, a few leaders in the church, when you get those that are most receptive to actually begin doing work that is outward focused and you let that sort of revitalization of their own spiritual, that spiritual renewal take place, begin to get contagious in the church itself. Like you, you got you almost got to bring back the virus of thinking outwardly mm-hmm. to combat the virus of looking inwardly. Yeah. And, and that doesn't happen unless, unless you, you wind up finding, and I, I encourage pastors to think, okay, so let's say you get some pushback and resistance and just apathy from 80%. 90% of your congregation. Well, if you've got three or four people that are somewhat receptive that you can bring kind of out of the shell and out of the, well, this is the way we've always done it and kind of do, where they're actually thinking of ways of serving the community or, or ways of, you know, if you can just start start with who you have that's that's receptive in that way, pray for God to show you who those are. You let the, instead of the pastor feeling the weight of I got to change the pers- the perspective of everybody in my congregation. You let God do that changing through the people that the Spirit's already changing their perspective in. So it's it's a shared burden. It's not just all on the shoulders of the pastor. I think that that's really key to getting people to thinking outside of the outside the box, outside their own walls and whatnot, and beginning to think. I mean, the reality is a lot of churches are small. The vast majority of churches mm-hmm. around the world are small. And we've got to stop seeing that as something that's necessarily bad in and of itself and recognize that there's there can be strategic ministry that happens through a smaller church rather than assuming that that's always something to downplay. I mean, it's difficult. It's really difficult, especially when a church has already gotten to a certain age. It's it's harder to reach young people. I mean, all of the there are all sorts of dynamics in play from age to class to, you know, ethnicity, all sorts of things that can make this a, a challenge. To reaching the community. But I mean, starting with who you've got is one of one of the things I'm encouraging pastors to be thinking about. I love that idea of starting with who you've got. And it ties into what you said even earlier about don't we always think it has to be the big thing, but really if we can think small, what is that thing we can do in our community? What's that three or four people we can pour into in our church? One of the reasons I think we struggle with that you also address in this podcast is that kind of consumeristic mindset that has really infected the American church in a way that makes us, I think it makes us as pastors feel like we are in competition and we're, we're losing, right? And so when we look at our 40 people and we look at other churches in our community, we feel like, oh, this is a competition and I'm losing and the small things that I'm doing aren't important. How would you encourage the pastor that struggles with that mindset? Maybe even they're not necessarily even trying to be subservient to the consumeristic mindset, but they feel like they're subject to it. Like they don't know how to succeed because they feel like they're in competition. Yeah. I mean, the first thing I would say to that is like, let the good side of the consumeristic mindset do its work. Hmm. And what I mean by that is like, we, we tend to, I think, almost like just sort of rail against the consumer culture. There are all sorts of challenges that are brought to the church by consumer culture. I've written a lot about those. I'm not saying we should be pro-consumer culture. But 
those challenges always have opportunities. And one of the opportunities is when you live in a consumer-driven society that is built on marketing, every organization has to ask the question, why? Like, why are we even here? Why do we exist? You can take some of the consumeristic pressures and actually use those in the favor of a, of a church recognizing we can't just we can't just say we exist because we exist and we should exist because we've always existed or we've existed for 100 years or whatever. You can't do that anymore. You have to clarify the mission. And like, what are we really here for? Like, why, why, what are we doing? Why are we meeting every week? Why are we, you know, why haven't we shut down? Why don't we just all go to the church across town? Like at the end of the day, you got to ask the question, like, what does God, like, what, what, what particular mission does God have for this particular church? I mean, obviously it's connected to the great mission that all churches are supposed to have, but like ask the, the contextual question, like, what are we doing right here, right now? Like, why does God put this church here? And does God still have a future for this church? And if he does, what is it? So I would just, I would not rush past the feeling of pressure that you get in a consumer society. I would let that pressure do some of the good work of leading you to clarification of mission questions that can be really helpful for a church mm. to, you know, to say, you know what, we, we're, we're not just going to be here because we've been here. We want to be here because God's called us to be here and we've got a, a role to play in this community for this reason, for this purpose. You know, what are the particular gifts we've got for such a time as this kind of a question? So, so first I would just say, don't rush past those consumer, that, those consumer culture challenges. But secondly, then I would say, okay, don't think of yourself as competing in spaces where other churches may be doing great work. Think of yourself as complementing rather than competing to say, okay, we're a 40 member church and they've got 400 across town and they got all these programs and we can't compete with those programs. Well, it's like, don't try. Like you're going to just like a 40 member church trying to like have the level of kids programming or whatever, you know, or student ministry or whatever that a 400 member church is, it's probably going to be done not really well. So I think you got to ask the bigger question of then, okay, what does it look like for us to invest in the, in the, the younger generation or the people that we've got in our, in our congregation in a way that actually is going to let them lead. There's a book called Growing Young that came out a few years ago that talks about churches. And these are not, some of them are larger, but not all of them larger. There's a lot of small churches that one of the ways that they incorporate young people into their congregations and are able to see growth among young people is by investing, like seeing them not as the target, so to speak, but as leaders in the congregation. They, they call it embrace keychain leadership. In other words, you give, you hand over the keys, like you, you let them really lead and like lead out. And then they take ownership in the congregation itself. A few years ago, Andy Stanley made some controversy because he made a comment about how student ministries that don't have sort of the flash and glitz and glamour of the megachurch, what megachurches can do for student ministry is basically like, look, if churches don't get on the board and they don't have this like level of an excellence with student ministry, you're just going to lose them all. They're going to either come here, they're going to leave the church completely. And I remember when all that happened and there was some backlash and Andy kind of apologized and said, I didn't mean to like diminish smaller churches and their student ministries. But I just remember thinking, that's not even true. I know lots of people that went to like flashy, glamorous student ministries that are nowhere near the church today. And other people who were in smaller congregations, but who were very involved in serving that are as invested in the church today as they ever were, because they were trusted with leadership and responsibility early on. So I would just say, like, I think a lot of smaller congregations and those in decline can sometimes beat themselves up for not being what the church across the street is, rather than realizing God can use all, God uses all kinds of churches, all kinds of sizes. It's good to want to have younger people in your congregation. Don't think that the, it's the program that's going to attract them. Programs don't decide people. 
people disciple people. Yeah. When Paul talks about discipleship, he doesn't talk about, he talks about young women pouring into older women, pouring into younger women and older men into younger men. He doesn't, he doesn't talk about adopting the, the latest, greatest, you know, having the latest, greatest experience in a youth ministry environment. So all that to say is, don't try to compete, try to compliment and like to figure out what does it mean for our church to do, to, you know, to do discipleship well in different mm-hmm. kinds of ways that may not be as programmatic, but can still be very impactful and personal for people. It's a good word, Trevin. Thank you. Thinking of this one last question, as you look at the church today, what causes you to have hope for its future? You know, I'm not really optimistic about the church but I am hopeful about the church and I'm glad you asked me about the question of hope. I mean, the main hope that I get is just the fact that the church goes through these cycles of renewal and decline all the time. And I mean, the, the I mean the church at large, I don't just mean individual churches. There are seasons where it's really tough and then there are seasons where just abundant fruit happens. And I like, you can trace these throughout church history. So I think one of the things that gives me hope is just watching these cycles and throughout church history, recognizing we're, yeah, we're facing a lot of challenges, but the church is always facing challenges. Like it's just, th- this is the kind of thing that happens a lot. So I have hope for that. I have hope of what gives me hope is what Jesus says about the church, that the gates of hell are not going to prevail against the the church. Another thing that gives me hope is I do see a hunger among younger people, especially for an encounter with God that is serious. And I see, you know, a lot of people look at the next generation and they, they're deeply concerned and there are reasons for concern. But when I look at some of the commitment to just traditional, like to orthodoxy among younger people is really, is really encouraging to me to, to see. Because I don't, I see younger people sometimes more serious about the truths of the faith than some of the, some of the older people that would complain about them. So, I mean, that's one of the, that's one of the interesting things is to, to watch the generational shift taking place. So all of these things give me hope. And then the, the main thing that gives me hope is just, I get, and you guys know this too, you get to be on the, when, when you work at a place like NAM or you get to serve in different environments and you know, my, my connections allow me to, to see a lot of churches at work, regardless of what makes the headlines, the, the church churches are doing really, really good work in a lot of places. Yeah, And yeah. just they're unsung heroes everywhere and people don't realize mm-hmm. it. And I love seeing the church in action, knowing, Hey, one, one of these days, like, and maybe in eternity, but God is going to, God's going to showcase the heroes of the faith. And they're not going to be the ones that we assume. There is so much amazing work that goes on in so many things that the churches are doing that don't make headlines, aren't reported in newspapers, on the internet, whatnot. And God sees, God sees all of that. And when we get a chance to see a lot of that, it's encouraging because it means God's at work and we get to be a part of it. It's a great word. Amen. That's so good. Just plot away in obscurity, staying true to orthodoxy. Our hope is in Jesus. Focus on not only the big things, but the small things. Don't be in competition, but be complimentary. So many highlights, so many great things. Uh, I wish we had more time, but I would encourage our listeners to go check out episode 12 of Reconstructing Faith, where Trevin dives into this uh, a bit further with several guests. And Trevin, thank you so much for coming on to the boot camp. Where would you like to point anybody that wants to know more about where they can read more, or listen more to more of what you're saying about the church these days? Yeah, I mean, you're just, I, I'm, I'm writing at trevinwax.com, which will take you to my column at Gospel Coalition. I do a couple couple columns a week there. So that's probably the, the easiest way to get in touch. And we're thinking about doing a second season for Reconstructing Faith. So hopefully if there's any listeners that haven't heard it that want to go listen to the 
to the first season. They're all up there and out there and hopefully will be helpful for a long time. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Replant Bootcamp Podcast, a resource for replanters by replanters. If you enjoyed this episode or found it to be helpful for you and your ministry, please help us get the word out by subscribing, sharing, and leaving us a review on your favorite podcast listening platform. This podcast is sponsored by 180 Digital. 180 Digital is a team of design, development, and marketing experts that love working with churches big and small. Check out 180.church, O-N-E-E-I-G-H-T-Y.church to learn more about how 180 can help your church move forward.